0: welcome to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, new releases and old classics, from end-of-the-world apocalypse films to cannibal B-movies, from melancholia to mountain of the cannibal god. My name is Michael Brooks, I'm here this week with Sam Oliver and delighted to have Bill King back with us. Hello. Oh, thank God Bill's back.
1: Hello, yeah, thank, thanks for thanks for. Stepping in last week, boys, um David and Amanda obviously wanted to go for a drink after what happened um the other night at the Oscars. Um and I don't think it'd have been good for them to know that I'd been recording a podcast with you two, knowing your views. So I just thought I'd better sit this one yeah. out. It's
2: good that they both both had a shoulder to cry on. That's good for you.
1: They did, yeah, they did. Yeah, it was both both shoulders were sodden.
0: <laughs> we have had some spectacular five star reviews though for last week's episode, so um never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was worryingly
1: good, well, concerningly good. It went, it went really well. But yeah, not not much disagreements. I think you need this this wild card in here.
0: Well, maybe we'll, maybe we will have some disagreements this week. Uh, so this week we are going to be talking about the new drama from Darius Marder, Sound of Metal, starring Riz Ahmed. Before that, though, let's get into some news. Uh, so it was the Oscars last weekend, uh, the Oscars held in a COVID-secure environment. Uh, it's fair to say that it didn't receive a glowing write-up, although when does it ever really? I mean, when do you ever have a post-Oscars like, kind of review where it's like, see, it's always either like, oh, it was too light-hearted or it was too serious or, it was too
2: po-faced or it was too long. It never is reviewed well, is it? I mean, it's never going, no one's, I think maybe like in the 30s when it first happened, everyone's like, oh, that was a jolly nice time. That was lovely. Look at all those nice people. But yeah, it's all, there's always going to be some issue with it. The only time
1: I've found it entertaining is when Warren Beatty read out the wrong name. Like that was genuinely entertaining. Um, but that's the only time I've ever really found that Oscars funny <laughs> or good. So yeah. I, I think the whole way, they, it annoyed me about um, Anthony Hopkins, poor Anthony, um, wasn't allowed to collect his award because he'd have had to have got up at four and gone to London. The man's
2: 83. Well, there was a bit of a backlash, wasn't there, about that, which is slightly unusual. Um... It just meant that I think the whole thing ended on a real, just weird, like, empty note because obviously he wasn't there and it was just like, oh, and the winner is Anthony Hopkins. And everyone was just like, cool, right, see you next year, bye, like. Just kind of ended on a bit of a <laughs> bit of a note. Well done, mate. Yeah, yeah. I can't see them repeating that next year. Will they uh,
0: shifting the best picture, best picture forward? We did have a bit of a chat last week, didn't we, Sam? Where you gave your predictions. Fair to say, you you were quite spot on. Although you know there were no real surprises there. Uh...
2: Yeah, I feel like all the things that I got right were the things that are you know if I'd put a bet on, I would have got nothing back in return. It was I think Nomadland and Chloe Zhao were absolute shoe ins for those respective awards. No real surprises, but I mean, I've not seen *Nomadland* yet, so maybe I'll see it and be like, "Totally worthy of all that plaud." So I
0: have a, a second bit of news uh, this week. So, which film made the news this week for losing its one hundred percent fresh Rotten Tomatoes rating? Oh, this gosh.
1: is this is more fallout from *Mank*, and I know it is. I know it's more fallout from *Mank* because <laughs> you guys have been review bombing now. Review bombing *Citizen Kane*. <laughs> Because for some reason you think Mank has made Citizen Kane a shit film, which I just totally, I just don't think it's fair.
0: Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> is it Citizen Kane? It is, yeah. So Citizen Kane, there was a an 80-year-old review was uncovered, uh, so from 1941. It was originally from the Chicago Tribune, uh, and I'll, I'll quote a bit from it. It said, it's interesting, it's different. In fact, it's bizarre enough to become a museum piece. It's sacrifice of simplicity to eccentricity, robs it of distinction and general entertainment value. I only know it gives me the creeps, and I kept wishing they'd let a little sunshine in.
2: It gives me the creeps. That's such a funny, like, someone come out of watching Citizen Kane and be like, ooh, that really gave me the willies. When you drop that snow globe, Ooh. Yes, Chicago Tribune, big Snow Globe fans. I'd
1: like it if in 80 years' time someone digs up Creaky Chair Podcast and uh, gets your review of
2: Mank and they, uh, <laughs> it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, they're like, oh, wow. Turns out it's not as good a film as we thought it was. We've unearthed this old podcast where they totally rip it.
0: <laughs> so, question is for, for a bonus question, uh, which, so it's lost its 100% fresh rating, but so which film now has replaced it at the top of the list? So, I'm not talking about the like fan fan reviews. I'm talking about weighted critics reviews here. Um,
1: critics, that's tough. Ooh. That is tough.
0: I don't think you'll get it. To oh. be honest,
1: I, I'm going to go out. I, I've got an idea. I've
0: got an idea. This is totally. Is it Toy Story? No, it's not. No, no. It's a
2: lot older. Ah, oh, that's a good guess. Who, who
1: the hell doesn't like Toy Story? Is
2: it Toy Story Two? <laughs> Is it Wizard of Oz? That feels like that must have been pretty G'd up about.
0: Uh, you're you're closer, but no, it's not. It's uh, the 1934
2: film, It Happened One Night. To be fair, that is pretty good, It Happened One Night. I like that. I have not seen it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's followed bizarrely by, uh, sorry, in second place is Black
2: Panther and in third place, Ladybird. Wow. Wow. I mean, to be fair, that's a, a, yeah. a real powerful trio of films there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the good, I, I'm not sure any of them are 100%ers, but yeah, fair enough.
2: So it's all based on critic reviews. It's not like a yeah. aggregated user thing. It's all critics. Hmm. No, yeah. So there's the
0: there's that rating, and then there's this one, which I don't know how they work it out. But that's that's just what the news article said.
2: Interesting. Poor old poor old Orson Welles going to be spinning in his grave, knowing he's been knocked off. Poor lad. <laughs> Great. I'm going to have to go for a drink with him next week. Yeah. <laughs> Bill's not going to be here next week. Cause he's got too too much Citizen Kane apologies to do. All right, uh, we are going to be talking about this week uh,
0: the new human drama film, Sound of Metal. Uh, This is the debut feature film from Darius Marder. It stars Riz Ahmed as Ruben. Uh, Ruben is a recovering addict and drummer in a metal band with his girlfriend Lou, played by Olivia Cooke. And they kind of, they tour around Basically, hole in the wall venues, and and drive around in an RV together. Uh, and then one morning after a gig, Ruben wakes up to find that his hearing has become seriously impaired, and after to being told by a doctor that the damage is permanent, Lou encourages him to move and stay uh, in a um, a rural shelter for deaf recovering addicts, uh, sort of a like a commune slash rehab center run by a Vietnam veteran, Joe, played by Paul Racy. Uh, Ruben struggles to adapt to his new condition and his new life circumstances, but has his heart set on raising enough money to pay for cochlear implants. So this film, it premiered in 2019, uh, but it's, its 2020 theatrical release was delayed by COVID uh, and it's now available for streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, and it was also, it was nominated at the Oscars for Best Film and Ahmed was nominated for Best Actor and it, uh, it won for, for Best Editing and Best Sound. As usual, we'll try and avoid any, any major spoilers, uh, but but yeah, if you haven't seen this film yet and want to uh, and don't want to know anything about it, uh, maybe come back to this episode once you have seen it, but uh, yeah, we'll try and avoid major spoilers. Um, Bill, as it's your first week back, do you want to kick us off? What did you think of Sound and Metal? Thanks, Mitch.
1: Um, I think I'll get the obvious stuff out of the way first. Those two Oscars, massively well-deserved. Uh, I thought the editing was brilliant. The sound design... Was incredible. I uh, didn't know what you thought, boys thought, but I thought it was done really subtly, more subtle so than I expected, to be honest. Um, the, the the way it dealt with his loss of hearing and certain certain things he could pick up because I believe he went down to like twenty five percent of his hearing at one point, and then obviously he has the cochlear implants at some point. and And the way that was brought in and explained to someone who has hearing, I thought was was really well done. It really put me in mind of it and got me to think about. How, how it must be to to be losing your hearing and going deaf. And I thought that was that was really well put across. And as I said, subtly done. It, it wasn't anything too flashy or this is a real show-off of sound design in this scene. I, I, so I think that, that, that's really commendable. The editing as well was brilliant because I think one of the things about the film that surprised me was it, it went over a quite a long span of time. You got the feeling that, and it's never explicitly made clear, I didn't think, but you got the feeling it was at least half a year or possibly a year or longer of this this person's life you're going through so it could have come across as quite documentarian and it was directed that way i think but the way it was edited he did have this nice thoroughfare of the you know classic three-act structure classic narrative really done very well and i think the editing was part of that whilst also having these these moments of of just insights into his life and what this character's feeling um which which informed it Uh, The other obvious point to make, Riz Ahmed, star-making turn. I think he's been brilliant since, I think the first thing I saw him in was Four Lions. I thought he was also brilliant in The Night Of, and he was excellent in um, Rogue One as well. His his big budget for into the Star Wars universe. And um, yeah, he's been brilliant, everything I've seen him in, but this was real tour de force from him. Um, A lot of acting he had to do with is just his eyes and his face, and you could see the turmoil. His whole body at times was was taught and you really when he was having his breakdowns, you really felt it. Um you saw every sinew of him was twisted up and you really got this rage and pain and 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 just torment that the character's going through, which I, yeah, I thought very powerful. I also have to um have to single out Paul Racy. Um wow um played the Vietnam vet that was the leader of this um this this deaf commune and what a performance. Um one scene towards the end, no spoilers. I have to, Felt my heartbreaking as we were watching it because you could just see the sheer devastation and guttedness in his eyes as as he was as he was talking to another character. And yeah, it was it was heartbreaking. You saw all this pain of a, of a life lived and, and what he'd gone through
2: and what his hopes were that were getting dashed in that moment. Going back to what you were saying about like, I think all the actors in this film have a really like they act with their entire body. I think Paul Racy and Riz both do this incredible performance where you're seeing them, like every part of them is doing the work rather than just sort of like the face. There's all their entire bodies. And I thought Paul Racy because he's obviously doing a lot of the sign language and stuff as well, and a lot of the characters at the Commune, I just was really taken away with how it was certain degrees of acting that they were doing that I was like, I don't think I've seen this sort of thing before. I think this is a real different way of expressing stuff. And it felt very very human, which I think goes back to that scene that you were alluding to that made it even more powerful, because I think I felt like I was seeing a real proper visceral reaction to an event sort of thing, which I think just everyone in it just, I think, obviously having to portray deaf character, a deaf character, I think it was a really interesting acting challenge to sort of Try different things and act with the eyes and the face and the body and the sinews of the muscles. I thought it was powerful.
1: Yeah, I, to- I totally agree, and I think I think that ties into a larger thing of like I've not watched much that has involved that much sign language, and I think I think seeing the characters signing and and it getting a little insight into that world and really put it across how conversations kind of flow from there. I found the dinner table discussions fantastic um, and and really quite. Quite life affirming from that point. It's like, wow, these people have overcome what is a huge disability and are able to to live this such a vibrant life and have these. Because I wouldn't have thought a dinner table argument or banter like they had would possibly be able to happen in a deaf community. I, oh, I didn't know how, and you know that's my ignorance. But um, yeah, I thought it was fascinating seeing that from across on the screen. Um, just going back to to Paul Racy. <laughs> I looked him up because I was like, you, "That was fantastic." Uh, why have I not seen him in anything before? And this guy's seventy-three, and I just—he's been acting for forty odd years, and he's had you know loads of guest roles and stuff. The biggest thing he's done so far was the possum episode in Parks and Rec, which is a great episode, and he's fantastic in it. But. He's gone and done this, and he's got this role at seventy-three years old. Oh yeah, oh, yeah he's it? another barnstorming performance. Um, very different performance, but he's gone and got this role at seventy-three, and this is a star-making turn. And people are going to be knocking on his door wanting him in the films. And I just love that when it happens. I think it happened with Christoph Waltz, who'd been a a jobbing soap opera actor before um, Quentin Tarantino got him in *Inglourious Bastards* and then becomes this megastar. I really hope that happens with Paul Racy because I just I just love that. You can, you can work in this industry for 40 years and then finally get your big break and everyone's going to see what wonderful act you are and you've been showcased in, in this film and, and especially in that scene. So that was great. The film as a whole, I think it was a bit unexpected for me because I went in, going in, expecting a film about music and the loss of one's hearing. And it's obviously about that and it does involve that. But I came away feeling that it was more about finding inner peace um, and accepting that life moves on and, and the search for serenity and, and, and mindfulness and and just accepting that, yes, losses happen and your your life changes, but we're going to move forward whilst able to have these, these moments of complete serenity and almost quite meditative. And I, I definitely think that was a, a thorough line through the film. And that was really unexpected because I thought the whole thing was going to be just about sort of rebuilding yourself after losing something in your life that you love. Um, and as I say, it did involve that, but yeah, I think it was more about this, this search for, for moments of serenity and just, and almost spiritualness. Um, so yeah, that was really surprising for me. Um, uh, the only thing I'm going to pull a call bullshit on is, um, throughout the film Riz character, Ruben has a donut every day as part of his, um, therapy. Um, he sits in a room and eats a donut every day. And then throughout the film. Riz Ahmed is incredibly ripped. He looks great. And I've just got to call bullshit because I did a similar thing during lockdown. I had a donut most days. And yeah, my, my body looks nothing like Riz's. So yeah, I think the filmmakers have been a little bit disingenuous there. So I'm going to knock off a star. But apart from that, wonderful film. Really enjoyed
2: it. It also really stressed me out every time he got the donut that he didn't take the plate with him. Like, he always just picked up the donut by itself. And I was like, there's a plate there. Like, take the plate with you. I know that means that, you know, you won't be able to smash it as effectively. But I was just like, your hands must be so sticky, Riz. What are you doing? I'm like, you're very house proud, aren't you, son? <laughs> yes, Sarah would never let me take, pick up a donut. You're going to get
1: sugar on the table. And you can, you've got to worry about wasps at this point <laughs> oh. as well. It's, you've got to worry about Wasp, but yeah.
2: <laughs> Near all those fields with sugar just lying about on the table. Nah. Sam, what did you think? I was. I think this is one of those films that I've been looking forward to for a while. I really, really like Riz Ahmed, and I think anything that he's in, I will happily go and watch. And I think because he's this film, as well as another film that I've not had a chance to see yet called Mogul Mowgli, uh, it's out this year as well. I think we're a two big like Riz Ahmed-centered performances. So I've been really looking forward to this film for a while. I think potentially my own kind of anticipation might have slightly ruined my enjoyment of it because I think I was almost built it up way too much myself that it never could have delivered on my own expectation, Um, which again is entirely my own fault for being so excited. Very similar feeling to when I, you know, used to get really excited about new Marvel films coming out and then just being like, oh, they're never going to be the six-star behemoths I'm wanting them to be. I don't, you know, never going to learn, am I? But that aside, it's a a fantastic film. I've really, really enjoyed it. I think the sound design, at, at the start, I thought the sound design, I almost felt like I was watching a horror movie. I think it was such a, so effective and such a kind of, powerful portrayal of what that kind of how disorienting and how stressful that experience must be because I think you know from the start and you know from kind of like reading the synopsis of the film that obviously he's losing his hearing and you kind of already know in the back of your mind like you have an idea of how distressing that must be and I think when it starts happening in the film I was really impressed by how uncomfortable it was and how it really put me in the mind of almost kind of like made me kind of sit with the idea of how awful that must be. Because you kind of almost go into the film going like, yeah, I know that's where it's going to go. But when it does happen, you are really sucked into his world. Yeah, I think all of the performances in it were great. I think um, Olivia Cook, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of. I think she was, uh, like, there's a very interesting character and a very kind of interesting dynamic of when she was talking about her kind of concerns for Ruben and, like, their relationship. I think I would have liked to have maybe spend a little bit more time with her and sort of seen a little bit more of what their relationship was yeah did you it could have almost made another film about her couldn't they? they could do
1: they could do a spin off of this of just her her time because it seemed like she went through an yeah. arc that you didn't really see um and I'd be interested to see that because when she was on screen she was great and her relationship with her father i thought there was there was loads of stuff to mine there and you felt yeah, do, all right. Do a sequel, and uh, and we'll we'll yeah tie it together because I do think there was there was a lot to talk to be doing that.
2: Yeah, I think inevitably this sort of film, like you're following Ruben, you're following his story, and all the other characters are kind of like side players in his story. But absolutely, I think you almost get that kind of frustrating, tantalizing glimpse of these other characters that are very well rounded, and you feel like it's that great thing of you feel like they have these lives that are happening that you're just not seeing but I find myself a little bit frustrated that like oh I kind of want to see what the rest of their life is and I want to see what their arcs are and like Paul Racy's character I want to see what he's been like I want to I feel what he's been through and I feel what he's experienced but I kind of want to see it and I want to see what that teacher's been doing I want to know what her life's been like I think there's such it's almost like a blessing and a curse because you get these really well-developed characters that you see little glimpses of that are amazing and obviously give the film such like power and depth but you're like oh give me a little bit more can i watch this as like an eight hour tv series please like i want to just get really deep deep into it i felt like because you mentioned briefly the idea of like you don't really know what the time frame of any of this is and you kind of it doesn't obviously it's not going to do a very cliche ridden sort of like six weeks later title card but i think that did occasionally made me feel like things were moving. It felt like things were moving a little bit too quickly. I think there were certain bits where I, again, I don't want to go into too much detail and spoil anything, but I think there was a few moments where I was like, I want this idea developed a little bit more. I'd kind of want to see a little bit more of him getting enmeshed in this community. I felt like there was a few bits that felt a little bit too rushed. That being said though, as Bill mentioned earlier, I think the, I like the the visual of like experiencing this deaf community was really, really incredible. And I think the kind of like parallel between certain scenes, so like the first dinner table scene compared to a later dinner table scene, you see that really beautiful progression and you kind of change from it being quite a daunting experience and quite a stressful scene to being a really kind of like affirming and really positive scene. And I think those sort of moments and those arcs that you go on with the character make things that happen at a later stage a lot more, powerful and a lot more effective it did really make me want to learn sign language because i had that thought initially when he's in that community and he obviously doesn't know what's going on it just made me feel really guilty that obviously there are so many deaf people that are having that experience every day where people are chatting away and they've got you know no idea what's going on it just made me feel i think i was surprised by all of the kind of emotions this film made me feel because obviously I was expecting to feel sorry for Ruben's character but I think it creates this really dense world that feels very lived in and I think it gives you all of these sort of emotions that at at certain points it kind of makes you sit with a little bit and makes you kind of like reflect on your own kind of experience and so forth which is incredibly powerful I think yeah I I was a big fan of this film like I said I think my expectations were I'd set myself up for a fall. I don't think it was ever going to deliver on what I was hoping it would be. But yeah, star turns from nearly everyone in this film and I can't wait to see kind of where it goes next. And also for this to be Darius Marder's first film is also a great film straight out the gate. I think it's such such a great film. And again, very well-deserved, all of its Oscar nominations. Um, it's a, not a flawless film by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it's a real... I think it's when you, a lot of those awards films, you watch and sort of have that like, okay, let's see if this was worth all the attention it got. And Sound of Metal completely is worth all the credit it got and all the plaudits it's received from acting to the editing, to the sound design, to all those great scenes of um, Ruben in like a kid's classroom wearing a punky T-shirt that said Jism on it. I was just like, yeah, I'm all on board with this I, again, I think that's my main takeaway from Sound of Metal. The world it creates and the world it lets you inhabit is a really well realized world, and one that I want to see more of. I want to see the Sound of Metal TV series and check out Paul Racy's flashbacks. That's what I'm here for.
0: You have just reminded me, Sam. I'd I'd completely forgotten this, uh, but your mention of the punky T-shirt. So at one point, and it did this as a moment that made me sort of. Nearly punched the air because he, at one point he wears a T-shirt uh, of the German industrial band Einsterzen Naubarten, who are a band who were famous in the. Uh, yes. came out in the early '80s for playing. Power drills and they would play with bits of sheet metal <laughs> and hammers and all that sort of stuff. So very sort of li- literal reference to the to the title of the film. But I like that a lot. Wow, that's of, so you, cool. I think that must be yeah. I think that must be the first film I've ever seen someone wearing that ba-
2: a band T-shirt uh, from that band. I anyway. that is such a great deep cut. I really like that. Obviously, they've put that in there, being like, do you know what? Like some real nerdy music fans are going to punch the air, and it's really nice that they've you've given them what they were after, Michael. <laughs> So I find this. I find this film quite hard to critique fairly and honestly.
0: I agree with pretty much, you know, a lot of what you guys have both said, and that it's a very important, educative film. And I was trying to. I was trying hard to think of of other mainstream films about you know the deaf community, uh, and I have struggled really to find any many examples. I did a little bit of research, so there was a sort of major film in the forties called Johnny Belinda, which had a main main character who was deaf. A film called *Children of the Lesser, of a Lesser God* in 1986. Uh, There's a horror film called *Hush* from a few years ago, and Wonderstruck from a similar, you know, a few years ago. So, I mean, it's it's commendable, first off, that this film should have been made at all, and that you know, it's great that it will, as we've both said, like expose sort of deaf culture to a to a wider audience. And I think also it's particularly important and particularly brave of it to, in that it's it sought to portray the deaf community. Kind of in a complex way and the fact that you know there is this they also struggle with addictions they're also recovering you know and it was that was really good to see i'm afraid i did i did break the rule of this podcast though which was to not do any sort of critical reading around it um, just because i was kind of like i was kind of intrigued and it was bugging me a little bit so i did do a little bit of background reading into how it's been received by the deaf and hard of hearing community um, and it is fair to say quite mixed now that might just be because of the things that I've seen and I've read but and it may not be the whole picture but um so there has been quite a bit of criticism that the lead role was given to Riz Ahmed as opposed to a deaf actor this is kind of a hot topic at the moment isn't it because there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about you know giving uh, fair exposure to to gay actors in gay roles and not having those roles which are quite you know few and far between uh, giving those roles to 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 uh, heterosexual actors and I mean but compared to the roles that there are certainly lead roles for deaf characters I mean you know it doesn't even compare really does it so I think it's quite a bit of a shame actually I think that as good as Ahmed is as Ruben and he was fantastic in it there must be so many deaf actors that would have absolutely died to have had that role and I think as well Paul Racy. although Paul Racy uh, looked into his background so he is a uh, he's a hearing actor but he grew up with deaf parents so he is you know he is part of that community but even sort of his his role didn't go to a deaf actor and I thought it was a shame really that by and large the extras were sort of bit parts you know that there there kind of wasn't enough substance to their characters it would have been great to see a little bit more of their stories you know the role the characters that are actually played by by deaf actors. And I mean, this goes back to, I don't want to kind of, you know, just, don't want to labor this point a bit too much, but the thing is, you know, Hush, the film that I mentioned earlier, 2016 horror film, you know, Kate Siegel uh, played that lead, lead role. She's not a deaf actor. Wonderstruck in 2017 was uh, the main role. Uh, was played by Julianne Moore, who is not a deaf actor. So, You know there is a real paucity of roles, and given that this film was seeking to open up that exposure experience of of being deaf and hard of hearing to greater exposure, I think that was a real missed opportunity. Aside from the casting, I also read uh, some criticism that you know the way in which deafness is portrayed as either kind of like it's cast, isn't it, as that choice between either you accept accept isolation, you accept that kind of your sort of handicap as it were which is they, they're quite keen for it not to be seen as a handicap or you go down or you opt for sort of surgery and implants and there was yeah i think a lot of the, the sort of comment that i've read about it is that there's a lot more nuance than that and it is it's that's far too black and white a portrayal and in that in that light i think the scene bill that you spoke talked about which i've did with with joe who, that kind of cr- critical dramatic scene that did feel like a sucker punch and it did feel like is it entirely believable in that Given what has been said about the you know the, the fact that there is all this complexity about it, I don't I don't know. Technically, I don't have anything else to say that, that you guys have already said. Yeah, the direction the direction is really good. The sound design is fantastic. I mean, I actually thought that the the most powerful scene for me and that I'd have loved to have seen more of. I felt it was a bit of a missed opportunity as well. Was that scene where he you know the bit where he's just been told by the doctor that any you know he must avoid exposure to loud any loud noise. And he then goes ahead and he's then playing another gig. And I just felt that scene was, it was so full of tension and it felt really squeamish, actually, I thought, that scene. And I'd have loved for that drama to have been played out a bit more. You know, the build-up to the gig, the sound check, all the nerves and the doubts are at play. I felt that it, it sort of squandered that tension too soon for me. But I'm being a bit down on it. I mean, There are some very touching moments in the film. I thought you know, the final scenes are very affecting. And there's that scene in the park, isn't there, where he's sort of interacting with that, the deaf kid and he's playing on the on the slide. I thought that was really, that was a really lovely lovely scene. Ultimately, I think my last point. I think if it dragged on a little in the second half for me, it wasn't really doing enough to fully maintain my interest. But that said, you know, as I said at the top, I find it quite difficult to sort of critique it like we would do any normal film because I think it is so important that you know these these stories reach a mainstream audience and it is so great to kind of despite all its flaws that it does that it does kind of explore the um, uh, disability issues in this way. It's not done often enough, is it, by by Hollywood. And it really did bring home that shock and that horror of, you know, suddenly losing your hearing. I think anyone watching it will find that really powerful. So, yeah, flawed for me, um, but... But ultimately, I think it's very worthy.
1: Just on the the casting point, yeah, I, I do agree. Um, it should be deaf actors um, in it, and and obviously, that that is to its detriment. But I was also arguing the film was a, as much about deafness as it was about addiction. So I think you could say the same thing. Like, did Riz Ahmed have a history of addiction? Is Olivia Cooker recovering um, self-harming, um, recovering addict? Uh, same with Paul Razy. Most of the characters were recovering addicts you know is there is there a blowback from the community there saying well should have actors with a history of this have those roles so i do think it's it's a difficult one and I, for me i think the benefits of having a film like this in the mainstream with a mainstream cast because there's so very few of them we've just named like three which is ridiculous and there's only three we really know of outweigh the um the obvious flaws of, of not having a big enough deaf cast and you hope that maybe this film will result in funding for the next film, and the next film will have a a deaf lead actor, and then it and it goes on from there. I do I do think these things move slower than they should, but this film, you know, it has seen a massively wide release. They've got massively bankable stars there in Olivia Cook and Riz Ahmed who who are gonna you know be box office draws. Will get a larger audience seeing it. So from my point of view, and obviously I'm not talking as a deaf person, so I'm not really qualified to comment at all. I think that is a, a benefit to to the deaf community. I'm sure that it it need we need to have these films out there that that deal with this subject. And there hasn't been enough. And yeah, the hope is that this will improve things for the next film, that maybe there'll be more funding there and more opportunities for for deaf actors and deaf crew as well. I think that's important. Um I think it'd be worth looking into how many deaf crew worked on the film, because that's, you know, there is integral part of the industry as well. So yeah, I, I I think, I think largely the film's a good thing. I, I personally believe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, like I say, I, I don't think whilst it wasn't, whilst I found the film, it didn't quite hold my attention in the way that I would have liked I wouldn't say for that reason. I wouldn't recommend it because I think absolutely, you know, it should it should reach a wide audience for for all the more important reasons.
2: I think you're absolutely right, Bill. That like it's very much kind of what happens next sort of thing. I think if Sound of Metal does open up more opportunities, more funding, more chance for deaf creatives to get out there and make their like tell their stories and make those kind of films, then that is undeniably a positive thing. But to kind of for, on Michael's point, like if that doesn't happen and if that can, if it continues to be a paucity of roles for deaf actors, then it's a negative thing. So it's very much like there's no way of knowing at this stage. And it's, it's great to get that message out there. And it's great to kind of like shine a light on um, like that community and those people. But it is very much now kind of like, let's see where it goes from here and hope that it's going to go in a positive and kind of worthwhile direction also going back to your point michael about the um the scene where he like, that he felt could have been given a little bit more um i didn't really think about that because i th- i almost thought it was playing i th- i felt like weirdly it kind of played it for laughs it felt it felt to me like it was played as a kind of comedic moment and at the time i i thought it was quite quite funny and i was like oh it's a really like a fun ironic smash cut of don't go near anywhere loud venues, and then he goes to a tiny loud club to play a gig. But it's but it's somebody. But what
0: you're seeing there is like self harm. He's self harming himself yeah. because that is the absolute worst thing that you could possibly do. And every and every single moment, every smash of the symbol, every you would know that you are permanently damaging yourself. And I just thought that is so dramatic a scene so it is weird it's it interesting that we both had different reactions
1: I, I saw it then as you know his, he was he was addicted to that lifestyle he was addicted to music and he was addicted to um, his partner and, and that was the thing he was struggling with all the way through the film was he obviously had an addictive personality and he couldn't help but be drawn to these things even if they did harm him in the end um and and yeah so i, I saw it as a bit of a, a creeping dread but yeah it is it interesting how you can the different ways of, of seeing that one
2: but like i think looking back on it now after kind of like that different interpretation of how that scene could have played out i do i do agree with you michael that i think i almost didn't get that feeling that i i, I think i would have been a far more powerful scene if i had had that feeling of going like oh what are you doing like rather than it feeling to me like it was being played as an ironic smash cut for laughs. I feel like, yeah, if you'd, if there had been more of the build up, because I think Riz Ahmed proved out the film that he's got, like he can act those scenes and he can act those emotions without really doing all that much on the surface. And I feel like I now feel like, yeah, it would have been a lot more interesting to see that play out of like him making those decisions. I feel like that, goes to a point of uh, a feeling i have about the film in general that like there is a lot of stuff that i feel like could have been pulled out a little bit more could have been explored in a bit more depth i think there was a few things that it felt like it was racing towards a point a bit too often and it could have sort of like sat with those moments for a little bit longer and gone and like that scene is a prime example that i hadn't thought about until you mentioned it that it almost could have given me a different feeling and a different emotion that it didn't do for me
0: mm. yeah i definitely i definitely felt that about the uh, the, the sort of final scene between reuben and and uh, lou which is a very tender scene i i kind of felt like there's more there you know you can you can really build that out because it's sort of quite a quite short scene but it's really it's an important scene
2: mm.
1: well there's a larger thing there it's like would it have worked better as a series I think this is a possibly one of those where it possibly would have been. genuinely. Like I do think you would have maybe got longer in the arc and as as Sam said, explored more of the characters, had more of that build up and, and dread as, as as you wanted, Mike. And yeah, I did I thought the strongest act of the film was the second act when he was in the deaf community. And yeah, I wanted to see more of that. So yeah, I do I do think I could have, could have stayed with it a little longer. Um, it might have worked really well as a, as a TV series. Um, not saying it didn't work as a film. For me, it worked really well as a film. Um, I really enjoyed it. But it could have been something even better, maybe, if it had been a TV
0: series. Great. Well, quite a range of, range of views there on Sound of Metal. Uh, but I think we are all agreed that uh, a very important film and one well worth checking out. Uh, so you can, you can watch uh, Sound of Metal. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. So what else have we been watching this week, Bill? Do you wanna? What have you seen this week? Anything good? Yeah,
1: I, uh, I I put on Netflix and I saw this pop up and I could not resist. John Carpenter's *They Live*. Oh yes, I re- watched it years ago. Yeah, thought thought this <laughs> oh, would be yeah. popular. I watched it many years ago as a teenager, and uh, I revisited it, and I've got to say it stands up. I had such a good time. I had had such fun with it. Um, so basically, uh, the, the premise: Rowdy Rowdy Roddy Piper stars as a drifter who uh, who's struggling, new into town, struggling to get work, and he finds a pair of sunglasses, which when he puts them on, show him that the rich and powerful are in fact gross aliens, and advertising slogans and 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 magazines actually say words such as "obey" and. Money is your god, as well as marry and reproduce. So his reaction to that, his immediate reaction to that, is to get a shotgun and start blasting away at aliens. <laughs> the film's the film's brilliant. It's a it's a classic B movie, um, but with a brilliant premise. It's got a, a an excellent premise that you do think about. You know, it's the compelling themes to say about consumerism and unregulated capitalism and uh, and how we can all get lulled into this this um, this this rote way of living where we're just we're just getting more money to go on meaningless holidays and buy meaningless stuff we don't need and are alien overlords affecting us what are they are they farming us um (laughs) i also love that it's got this idea that this guy this guy's reaction is to start blasting away at what could be innocent people if he's just gone mad you know that's that's the point he walks into a bank and just starts shooting rich people and cops Um, so it's quite disturbing in that way but I'm saying all this stuff and I'm really not getting across how very funny and entertaining it is. I won't spoil any of the lines in there because they are great. uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, possibly not the most talented of actors, but what a presence, a lot of charisma, and he's very funny in this film. Um, it also includes a six-minute fight sequence between Rowdy Roddy Piper and the legendary Keith David, which becomes so ridiculous that about midway through, one of the characters just descends into fits of giggles, and I was just laughing along with him, and that's the sheer joy <laughs> that was coming through this film, but I love it because it's got that that, that joy, and I think it was what we're talking about with um, some of the classic kaiju films, was that it's got this 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 unrelenting fun of Friday night beers, but also... A real strong, cool premise and something that makes you think about politics and capitalism and consumerism. And yeah, I'd I'd say Carpenter at his best. It won't be for everyone, but yeah, I I highly recommend it. I absolutely loved watching it again.
2: It's, it's, I think, one of those like great action movie things where yep you want the long you want him blasting a shotgun you want a six minute fight scene in an alley but there's also a little bit of meat to chew on as well there's a little bit of weighty dialogue and a little bit of weighty kind of thoughts going on about consumerism it's the perfect thing to kind of sink your teeth into but also have a really fun silly time and again like bill mentioned some of those one-liners are forever like they live rent free in my head some of those lines they're so good oh um, is it is on netflix did you say
0: it is yeah yeah that's your sunday sorted
2: no no i'm doing this bank holiday
0: yeah absolutely love it i mean it is you're right it's one of carpenters very best isn't it um i think i don't know I, I, without checking i don't know but i think it might have been made the same year as as uh the wall street film the oliver stone film and that and they live are like two Brilliant sort of satires. I think that's the eighties right there, isn't it? That's those com- mm. those films as commentary. It's just fantastic. I mean, yeah, it's it's such a good fun film. That fight scene, as you as you said, Bill, is just quite ridiculous. I wasn't quite sure what I was what I was seeing when I first watched that. <laughs> and also, I mean, just I mean the final the final shot, the final scene is just absolutely wonderful. Ah. <laughs> oh.
2: <laughs> what a sensational movie
0: yeah sorry I, uh, I immediately know I want to go and watch that and we'll be doing a They Live special next week <laughs> we need Carpenter back don't we he's not made a film for. he's too busy making music these days yeah he's too busy putting
2: out some synth banners I mean uh,
1: yeah obviously incredible Carpenter soundtrack as well I've got to just throw that in there as always the man does his own music and uh, yeah the soundtrack is amazing so yeah enjoy it for that as well
2: Sam what have you watched this week um so this week, I'd like to go back to an idea I had a while ago of doing From the Sublime to the Ridiculous. So there's two films I want to talk about, one that is beautifully sublime and a real experiential film, and one that is similar to They Live, quite ridiculous. So The Sublime is um, this great documentary that I saw that's on Amazon Prime. It's called Hail County This Morning, This Evening. And it's a documentary by um, a photographer turned filmmaker called Ramel Ross. It's about the life of the residents of Hale County in Alabama, which is um, quite a poor, predominantly black neighborhood. And the film is, it's this beautiful documentary that it feels like being in an art gallery. It's just these beautiful scenes of very simple, like the life of these people. And a lot of the scenes are just allowed to sort of play out very naturally. Like, there's a beautiful scene where it's just one shot of um, these guys in the locker room before a basketball game. And you're just, it feels like you're just sitting in the corner watching these people live their lives and watching all these like tiny little dramas play out in like real time. Uh, the film is only a very, it's 78 minutes long and it's been condensed from 1,300 hours of raw footage that was shot over 54 days. And to kind of have that much scope for footage to then pass that down to 78 minutes is an incredible feat in itself. And what you're left with is just this very experiential documentary that feels at at points like you're watching like a daydream happen. It feels like a certain bits of it, thinking back on it now, I feel like, do you know when you have a dream that you can't really remember and when you're trying to talk about it, you're like, oh, there was a bit where Somebody was putting a sofa in the living room and then this kid was running. And I think there was a bit where there was a bee. It's that kind of vibe to it, where it just feel, it washes over you. It's a perfect portrayal of this community and these people. And Ramel Ross just lets these people live their lives and you just see it all happening. There's like church ceremonies taking place. There's people doing basketball drills. There's kids dancing in the street. There's a great bit where this guy just rides up on a horse in the middle of this car park and everyone's just around him looking at this guy on a horse. It's, it's, it's lovely. It's, I don't think, I don't think it would be for everyone because it is quite a kind of, it's very slow and it just kind of lets a lot of stuff happen. And like being in an art gallery, it kind of just lets you sit there and ruminate on a lot of things and just shows you these beautiful shots. And it kind of lets you take a little, like it lets you kind of, put your own message on what the film is doing. But it's it's beautiful and it's a really, again, 78 minutes. So, you know, and the ridiculous that I watched this week is the Arnold Schwarzenegger action classic Commando from 1985. I watched this last night, actually, and it's the perfect film to watch. I mean, now that the pub gardens are open, if you go for a couple of beers, come back with a takeaway pizza, stick on Commando and you're going to have a great time. And I mean that because that's exactly what I did last night, and I had a great time. Arnie plays John Matrix, which I think is one of the coolest action movie names in existence. He's a man who eats green berets for breakfast and is very hungry. And it's—I mean—you don't need to know the plot of this film because it's a—it's a standard action movie setup. To see Arnold Schwarzenegger just do lots of massive action things, fight loads of security guards, tear an entire phone booth off a wall, flip a car over and just do some incredible 80s action movie. It's ridiculous, but it's so much fun. It's an absolute whale of a time. So yeah, if you're looking for something really deep and meaningful that you can have a beautiful experience, Hale County this morning, this evening. And if you want to just have some a Friday movie with some beers, Commando with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Those are my recommendations.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've got nothing to say about Hale County. I've not seen it, apart from well done, the editor. I presume they've, they've gone on holiday for a nice long rest after making that. But weirdly, <laughs> I watched Commando the other night. It was on TV, um, and I watched it, and I'd forgotten how incredible the opening sequence is. Um, and I know we say no spoilers, but this sequence involves close-up shots of Arnold Schwarzenegger lifting an entire tree, um, an entire tree trunk um, mm. over his shoulder, marching <laughs> yep. through this forest. You then um, you see some footsteps approaching him. You think, oh, he's going to get attacked. He sniffs the air because he can smell the assailant, spins around and you think, oh, he's going to get him. But it's actually his cute little daughter. It then goes into a montage <laughs> with accompanying piano music of him and his daughter having a fun day in town, putting ice cream on each other's noses and then feeding a deer. And um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the greatest action intros I've ever seen. I was I was astounded. It's
2: one of the best rug pulls in action movie <laughs> cinema history. And like when he's looking and then and the, you forgot to mention that before he goes to hug his daughter, he's really erotically chopping at chopping wood is, you know, bulging muscles, chopping that wood. And he sees the reflection in the ax. Oh, it's a, it's a cracking opening cracking.
1: <laughs> There's a lot going on
2: there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I'm going to stick with the stick with the B movie theme uh, for this week, and what I watched this week uh, was the 1973 horror thriller "The Baby," directed by Ted Post. Uh, in his back catalog are a lot of episodes of Rawhide and The Twilight Zone, as well as uh, he directed "The Beneath the Planet of the Apes," which is a fantastic film, uh, and Magnum Force. Now, "The Baby" is considered something of a uh, an obscure classic, I think, uh, and it's safe to say it's. One of the weirdest, one of the most deranged films I've seen in a while. If you've seen Jargis Lanthimos's quite notorious film Dogtooth uh, from a few years ago, uh, then that the, the sort of setup of that will will sound familiar. Uh, you'll see where the, the influence of Dogtooth came from. Essentially, it portrays a social worker, Anne, who is assigned to a new case, um, the eccentric and quite sinister Wadsworth family. Uh, and she reveals that she has a special interest in this case because the family's youngest member is an apparently mentally impaired adult man who is addressed only as baby and who is kept by the family as a baby so he he sleeps in a cot he wears nappies he is spoon fed he is not capable of words this i appreciate this sounds this sounds quite stupid and quite uh, comedic but trust me when you see this being portrayed uh, it soon makes you feel really quite uncomfortable and really quite disturbed. So the as an actress called uh, Ruth Roman. She is really fantastic as the like the Wadsworth matriarch who views Anne with disdain and suspicion um, whilst doing all she can to kind of keep a stranglehold on this bizarre family unit that she's created. And it really is one of those brilliant 1970s B-movies that just takes a strange concept and absolutely sees it through to the end. There's a really excellent... Plot development in the final acts, and it really it maintains its deeply unsettling mood throughout, while occasionally straying into territory that borders on being a little too much. Um, I'm not going to give anything away, uh, but yeah, it's it's genuinely quite mad. There's nothing else quite like it, I don't think, and it's well worth seeking out if you're into that sort of really odd cult sort of films. Uh, it's available on the Shudder platform,
2: and that's the baby. Literally, just hearing about this makes my skin crawl. It's it. It sounds like my worst actual nightmare. I oh, I I feel like I'll I'll be giving this one a wide berth, a really wide berth. I've got a bad
1: feeling. Oh. Mike's gonna Mike's gonna slip this into a, next time we're all together watching films. He's just oh. gonna slide that DVD out of his bag, and we'll just know. I've just
2: a good time for me to have my. I've had too many beers. Nap <laughs> sounds perfect. <laughs> Oh, it just sounds so. I feel like this is just the concept, really, like literally. I have I had that in ages, but just hearing you describe it made me genuinely feel a bit like, oh, oh.
1: Even the title, the fact that it's just called "The Baby," it's just so disturbing, man. It just sounds so wrong. I don't want to watch it.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, as I, as I say, there are moments in it where it really does cross cross a line. I think, <laughs> <laughs> but um. So anyway, what a, what a delightful array of movies we've covered today. Um, <laughs> thank you very, thank you all for listening. Um, listener numbers are continuing to climb, so thank you very much indeed for, for, for sticking with the podcast. Please do tell your friends about us if you enjoy the show. Um, leave us a review on whichever platform you use, and uh, yeah, follow us on social media. Next week, uh, it's our uh, monthly special episode, and we will be exploring the world of found footage movies. Popularised, of course, by the Blair Witch Project, but there's a whole host of other overlooked films, as well as a whole load of turgid imitations. Uh, so we'll be we'll be exploring some of those and discussing whether this is whether we think this is a worthy subgenre or a complete waste of time. Bill, Sam, good to be back as a trio. Uh, see you both next week.
2: Pleasure, as always. Remember,
0: the force will be with you, always.